The following audio is from Life Journey Church. More information about Life Journey Church is available at www.lifejourneyva.com. What a joy it is to be able to stand before you and say welcome to the one-year anniversary celebration gathering of Life Journey Church. It's truly a joy. And it's not simply a joy because we've made it a year. Most church plants don't. In fact, according to Nelson Searcy, he published an article that said 81% of church plants fell within the first 12 months. 81% of church plants. Church planting is hard work. For everyone that spent three, four, five hours here yesterday setting all of this up so we could be in the auditorium, you know that church planting is hard work. Church in general is hard work. Did you know that every year 3,500 churches close their doors for the last time? They just fizzle away and disappear. And so it's a joy to be here, not just because we've made it another year. It's a joy to be here, not just because over the last 12 months we've seen Life Journey Church double in size. But it's a joy to be here today because God is using Life Journey Church. He's using us to spread His fame, not just in Crozet, not just in the surrounding communities, but worldwide. He's using us to do it. I'm joyful this morning because over the last year, we've seen dear friends come to faith in Christ. We've seen people sitting in our living room, in, in the living rooms of our home, in our community groups, telling us, hey, I'm not a Christ follower. It's not me. That's just not who I am. But, but I'm here and, and I'm listening. And so we've seen them come to faith in Christ. We've seen fear-based moralism become love-driven worship. We've supported both financially and physically the furthering of the globalization of the gospel, the good news that there is salvation, that there is forgiveness found in Christ. We've seen life. we found freedom. So it's a joy to be here this morning. If I've not yet had the pleasure of meeting you, my name is Richard Boyce. I'm one of the elders here at Life Journey Church. I know that we have many guests from out of town, uh, sponsoring churches, friends, family. Thanks for being here. Thanks for coming here to celebrate this day with us. I'd like for you to go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 12. We're in Mark chapter 12 this morning. If you're new to Life Journey Church, or maybe this is your first Sunday here since our launch on September 9th of last year, we've spent the last 52 weeks systematically walking through the life of Christ through the lens of the gospel according to Mark. Now, we know that Mark wasn't one of the original 12 disciples, but we know that as a young man, he encountered Jesus was converted, and eventually became a disciple of Peter, who was one of Jesus' closest followers and friends. And so we know that Mark wrote this book about 25 years after the resurrection to the persecuted Christians in Rome who were being systematically destroyed for their faith, being fed to wild animals as entertainment, generally just finding life to be miserable. Mark wrote these words to give joy and comfort to the church. We also know that everything, and I mean everything, that God wrote to his church 2,000 years ago through the hands of Mark is 100% relevant to his church even today. And so we've been on a crazy journey this last year that began September of last year when Walt preached Mark chapter 1, verse 1 at our, at our launch service, which simply reads, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark then jumps right into the life of Jesus, who was a young man, a man of 30, approaches his cousin John the Baptist, to be baptized in the Jordan River. And so Jesus was putting himself into the place where only sinful people needed to be, 
He was being immersed as only sinful people were. And he was even then, before he even began his ministry, he was symbolically putting himself into the place of sinners and taking their sin upon himself. You'll hear me say quite often that the cross of Christ was never plan B. All right, the cross of Christ was always plan A. And from the time he was baptized, really from the time he was born, all the way up into the cross, Jesus was working towards that end. Later in chapter 1, Mark gives us his first recorded words of Jesus, who went through the, the Galilean area saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now repent and believe the gospel. Jesus went everywhere saying, hey, everything you read in the Old Testament, it's pointing towards me. The prophets, the law, the poetry, everything is pointing towards me. The Messiah that God was going to send for his people, that's me. Your rescuer, it's me. Your redeemer, it's me. Everything is now coming to fruition. And everything that you've read about, everything that you've heard about, everything that your parents told you that you've learned in the temple, that you've learned in the synagogues, it's all pointing to me. That's how Jesus began his ministry. We watched Jesus spend the next three years of his life ministering to people, healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons. He loved people. He ministered to people. He spent time with people. He was basically homeless, just traveling from one area to the next, meeting the needs of people, most of the time people who could care less about him. But everything that Jesus did kind of pales in comparison to what Jesus taught. See, Mark told us in chapter 1 that as Jesus taught in the synagogues, that everyone who listened was astonished at his teaching. They couldn't really believe what they were hearing because Jesus spoke as one who had authority and not like one of the scribes who liked to just get up and talk as though they knew what they were talking about. Jesus' preferred method of teaching was through parable or through story. They had obvious parallels, but he also worked a lot of his miracles specifically so that they would parallel his theology. In other words, the things that Jesus did were oftentimes designed to teach a deeper truth. As he healed paralytics, he did so simply to demonstrate his ability to pronounce sins forgiven. As he cleansed lepers, he did it so that he could show that I'm the only one that can clean people of their, of their inner sin. Not just a physical healing, but I can heal inwardly. As he healed withered hands on the Sabbath, he began to expose the religiosity and the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were a group of Jews who at the time, they were the cream of the crop. They were the elite. They prided themselves on their ability to keep the law of Moses, to live perfectly, to obey all the commands. And so they had the respect of the people because they seemed to be able to do what normal people could not. When Jesus calmed the storm at sea, he was demonstrating his power over creation. And he should have power over creation. It's his creation, right? When he fed the 5,000 and later the 4,000, it was his way of saying, I'm the only one who can satisfy your inner need. Don't just come to me for bread. Come to me for life. And I'm also the only one who can satisfy the Father on your behalf. When he walked on the water, he showed us that our means of attaining righteousness isn't found in the power of our obedience, but it's found in the God who was once far away from us, uniting himself to us through faith in Christ. Jesus taught and proved that he and he alone is the source of life, both physical and spiritual. When he healed the blind, he showed that he was the only one who could give sight both physical and spiritual. His message was simple, really. His message was, without me, you're hopeless. But in me, there is hope for all. Let me tell you, there was nothing that fired up the Pharisees more than Jesus saying, you can't do it, you need me. 
Well, what do you mean I can't do it? I keep the law. I've never killed anybody. I honor my parents. I go to temple every year. I participate in the Passover. Yom Kippur, it's about me. My sins are atoned for. I have achieved righteousness in the eyes of God because he told me what to do, and I've done it. I don't need you, Jesus. I don't need this, this garbage that you're spouting. They believed he was a heretic, a rebel, a liar, a lunatic, and they hated him for it. What do you mean I can't please God? I tithe. I go to church. I put money in the plate. I'm in a community group. No, it's not about what you do, right? It's about who you know. We found that the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. We need a new one. The one we're born with is worthless. The spiritual heart within us is still born at birth. We are born fundamentally opposed to God. Jesus taught, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. He also taught, no one is good except God alone. He said things like, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Which then prompted the question, well, if rich people can't do it, well, who can? And Jesus said, huh, exactly, it's impossible with man. But with God, all things are possible. The Pharisees wanted to be rid of Jesus. For three years now, they have grown in their, their hatred and their animosity. But, but then about a month ago, we watched Jesus as we're walking through Mark really turn the heat up on this feud between him and the Pharisees. About three and a half years into his ministry, Jesus had the audacity to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling messianic prophecies so obviously recognizable that the crowds who were watching began to scream, Hosanna! Salvation is here! Salvation has come! Our Messiah is here! He made claims of being the Messiah that were undeniable based on the power behind his message. We watched him curse in temple religion, clearing the place out, overturning tables, forbidding people to buy or sell or even carry the animals that they were going to use at the temple on the Day of Atonement so that God could symbolically wash away their sins. Jesus said, no, enough of that. Don't you get it? I am the sacrifice. I'm the Lamb of God. You don't need this religiosity. Stop. You're missing it. The law, everything, it's not about following the law. That's just to show you that you can't follow the law. Jesus said, you're missing the point. It's not about what you do. It's about what I've done, what I can do that you can't do. And they hated him for it. As Jesus turned Jerusalem on his head, we're in this final week of his life. The final week of his life. We found the Pharisees questioning the authority of Jesus. Who does this guy think he is? Isn't he just some carpenter's son from Nazareth? I mean, what's the deal? And they were right in doing so, because after all, if Jesus had no authority, that makes him what? A lunatic, a liar at best. But Jesus was the Son of God, and he did have authority, which makes him Lord. So today, as we begin Mark chapter 12, we find that Jesus is back into the temple, which, at least for now, is rather devoid of religious activity. The buying, the selling has ceased. I mean, just things are kind of upside down right now, and and tension is really mounting between Jesus and the ruling religious elite of Judaism. But Jesus is back in the temple, and even though life as usual isn't going on, there's still a crowd there. There are Pharisees, chief priests, some of the scribes, as well as people who were just there to see Jesus in action. There were people there who were followers of Christ. They believed the message. 
there were people there who were still kind of skeptics. They were sitting back, like maybe some of you this morning, and they're sitting back trying to weigh the claims of Christ against you know, the actions to back it up, trying to decide for themselves, is this man really who he claims to be? Does he have the authority to do and say the things that he's doing and saying? Doesn't sound too far removed from our own culture, does it? I have my tenure. I, I don't need your help. I've got, I've got my position in life. I drive my status symbol. I've signed my mortgage. I'm happy where I'm at, being my own boss, running my own show. I don't need a church. I don't need you saying that Jesus wants this out of me. Or I, I don't, I'm good to go. I don't need you. Who do you think you are, Life Journey Church, to knock on my door and tell me I'm, I'm a sinner? Walt and I actually got an email that said this. I'll, I'll read part of it for you. Email says, uh, from someone who lives here in Crozet, says, we are not interested in organized religion, especially organized religions such as yours, which are nothing but a scam and a money grab from the unfortunate and gullible who are unable to grasp the fact that you simply exist to fill your wallets from the pockets of the poor and misinformed. Now, that's not a very accurate description of Life Journey Church. In fact, part of the email Part of the email said, if, if, I, if you tell me where you, where you meet, I'm going to bring all this trash you leave on my porch and drop it off. And I'm, I'm like, well, the address is right there on the flyer. We meet at Wallace Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock. But, so his understanding of who we are is way off. But still there's that underlying sense of who do you think you are to tell me that I need something that you've got that I don't got. There's that rebellion against authority. But there are more than, there's more than one way to rebel against authority. Some people just reject it out of hand. But then there are other people who kind of recognize that the authority is there, but, but they refuse to submit to it, or they do it in as uh, reluctant a manner as possible. Here, here's a classic example. Maybe some of you moms and dads can relate to this. When I was growing up, and I was quarreling with my parents, and they would say, Richard Irvin, yes, my middle name's Irvin. I'm proud of it. Laugh all you want. You're making fun of my parents, not me, so it's all right. But they would ask me something, or they'd tell me to do something. Do you understand me? Yes. Yes, what? Yes, I understand you. Yes, what? Yes, I understand what you told. Yes, what? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I knew what she was driving at. I say she also got it from my dad. I gave him more lip than I did my mom. But, but there, was that, there was that refusal to submit to the authority that I knew they had. Basic training is the same way. Some of you have been in the military. Everything begins and ends with drill sergeant, right? And so you've got to follow the rules and basic training. But there are some people that, and when I say some people, I mean me. You know, they would give the speech, but, I mean, just the, the tone behind it was my way of saying, I'll give you the respect and the authority that I know you have, but I, I'm not going to like it one bit. And so there's more than one way to buck up against authority. And the Pharisees are trying to figure out, okay, does Jesus have it? That's the same question that we have to ask ourselves. Does Jesus have the authority to do and say the things he did? Because if Jesus does have the authority, then we're going to respond one way or the other. We're not just going to sit back and watch the show. But Jesus has the attention of this crowd now, and he's telling them parables. Now, Mark doesn't include this, but Matthew tells us that Jesus had just finished sharing a parable about a vineyard that captivated their attention. And now, as their blood is already beginning to boil, Jesus begins another one. 
And so he begins to speak. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Okay. Nothing out of the ordinary so far, right? I mean, these guys lived in an agrarian culture, so Jesus was using lingo they were familiar with. Jesus said, hey, there's a guy that rolled up his sleeves. He laced up his boots. He began the hard work of planting a vineyard. And so he plowed the land. He pulled out the large rocks. He put his trellises in place. He planted his grapevine. But a good vineyard needs more than that, right? And so this man also put a fence around it to keep the critters out. If the deer are destroying your grapes, what good are they going to be to you? But then he also goes a little further and he builds a tower. See, during the harvest time, the vineyard workers would actually live there in the vineyard, oftentimes sleeping in this tower. But from the top of the tower, they had a very good observation point where they could make sure that people weren't stealing grapes. You couldn't rob a bank back then, but you could sneak into somebody's vineyard and walk off with a couple hundred pounds of grapes. And so Jesus is beginning to build this well-articulated story of this guy that goes to pretty intense lengths to build this vineyard. And then he finds somebody that's willing to live there for a few years, work the ground, care for these things, pull out the weeds, watch out for the thorns. And it was a common practice done then that we even do today. There's a lot of people that farm land that live on the land that don't own the farm. But they're making money off of it. They're making the landowner money. It's a happy situation, right? So as Jesus is telling this story, he's beginning to draw these people in. Because he knows what he's talking about. And they know what he's talking about. But he's also got their attention because as we see in Matthew, Jesus had just finished telling a parable about a vineyard. Now, why is Jesus telling parables about vineyards? Well, it's because in the Old Testament, we find allusions to Israel being referred to as a vineyard. In fact, it seems that Jesus is actually beginning the story by quoting the prophet Isaiah, who in Isaiah chapter 5 says this. This is like 700 years before Jesus was born. He said, my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Sounds familiar, right? I mean, this is the exact same setup that Jesus leads off with. But then Isaiah goes on to say this. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes or sour grapes, grapes that were no good for anything. And now... O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. I mean, listen, listen to the way I feel about this. I want you to tell me if this is right. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I've not done in it? I mean, what else can I do here to make it grow good grapes? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I'll tell you what I'll do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I'll break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that there rain no rain upon it. Listen to this. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. See, Isaiah is not just giving a lecture on horticulture or agriculture or winemaking. Isaiah is given this picture between God and Israel as this landowner who's thoroughly disgusted with this vineyard for not producing grapes. For the vineyard of the Lord of the host is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting, and he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. There's no justice, it's bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. 
So Israel as a vineyard does not bode too well, according to Isaiah the prophet. Let's see if Jesus' story paints a much better picture. So where were we? Okay. Vineyard's planted, land is leased, owner leaves the area, time passes. It takes time to cultivate a vineyard. Usually about five years before the grapes that you plant are actually producing enough quality vine or quality grapes to make anything out of. How many of you watched the Duck Dynasty episode where Willie buys a vineyard? All right. Uh, I'm speaking to five of you, the rest of you. I'll pray for you. <laughs> but it takes time to produce wine from a vineyard. You're not going to do it overnight. So time passes. And Jesus says, when the season came, when it was finally time to begin to harvest these things, the landowner sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Well, that's fair enough, right? I mean, the tenants had leased the land from the landowner, and part of their payment to him was the grapes that they were growing that he had planted that they were caring for. All right, so it's nothing out of the unusual. They're not going to pay for it in cash. They could have, but what they did then was they just simply gave what was being planted, or they gave cattle if they were ranchers. But Jesus tells the crowd, because the story takes a turn for the worse here, tells the crowd that they took him, the servant, and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Now, when Jesus uses the word beat here, he's not talking about busted lips and black eyes and bruises. The word literally means to flay, to rip the skin off. And they beat this guy about as badly as you could beat somebody and have them survive it. And so by now, the people listening to Jesus are probably miffed at the behavior of the tenants. They're like, no, no wait a minute, why, why are they doing that? I mean, they had an agreement with the landowner. The guy's letting them grow grapes. They're making wine. They're making money. Why, why would they beat this guy that's simply collecting what is due to the landowner? We find in verse 4, again, the landowner sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. Now this is sheer lunacy, right? As Jesus tells this story, as many servants as this landowner sends to collect what's due him, the tenants there at the vineyard are beaten, stoning, killing, just treating disgracefully. And by now the people listening to Jesus are like, all right, this landowner needs to stop sending people. And get Phil Kim to jump in from 25,000 feet with some of his men and clear the place out. I mean, why is he going to still send, take an army and get your vineyard back? Enough with this. But this is Jesus' story. And he tells them, the landowner had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him, the son, to them, saying, they'll respect my son. They might not care much for my servants. They'll respect my son. I mean, he's my own blood, right? And you just know that Jesus has this entire crowd engaged as they're following the story. And sure enough, calamity strikes. The tenants said to one another, this is the heir. He has no more servants. This is the heir, though. This is who the vineyard goes to. Maybe if we kill this guy, then we can just keep the land. Who else is he going to send for, right? So they took him, they killed him, they threw him out of the vineyard. I mean, did they really think that was going to work? Did they really think that if they killed this man's son that he would just, he would say, okay, I quit, I give up, it's yours, been nice knowing you. Didn't even have the decency to bury the son. Killed him, 
chucked him out of the vineyard, treated him like a worthless piece of meat. And then Jesus asked the crowd, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Now, Matthew tells us that when Jesus asked this question, the people responded with this. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them the fruits and the seasons. Jesus affirms that answer in Mark as he says, yeah, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Could we expect any less? I mean, would you really expect the landowner to do anything other than go in there, destroy those people, and give the vineyard to people who are going to appreciate it, who are going to work it, who are going to respect the landowner, and when the time has come, give him what's due? No one in their right mind would expect this landowner to do anything other than what Jesus said he was going to do. And so at this point, Jesus has every rational thinker in the temple on the same page. They're mad. They're angry. Yeah, those guys should be destroyed. What they did was wrong. It was horrible. And then Jesus detonates this nuclear bomb. Have you not read this scripture? It's always funny when Jesus asked the religious elite that question. You know, in all of your studies, have you, have you not read this? And then he quotes, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Now, what Jesus is doing is he's taking the Hallel Psalm, Psalm 118, the same psalm that part of it is used every year at Passover as visitors would come into Jerusalem. In fact, it was the same chapter, the same psalm from which a few days before the people were screaming, Hosanna, salvation has come. Jesus was quoting from that and tying it directly into this parable about the landowner and the unworthy tenants. And that's when they realize that Jesus is talking about them and he's talking about himself pieces begin to click into place and they realize all right jesus began this story specifically pulling from isaiah 5 who refers to israel as a vineyard and then they begin to think through it as many servants as this landowner sent, god sent prophet after prophet after prophet to israel all with one message return to god Stop what you're doing. Just come back. But how did Israel respond to these prophets? They responded with anger, with hatred. We don't need that. We're, we're happy over here. We don't need God anymore. He's, what's God ever done for us? And so they would destroy the prophets until finally there were no more prophets. The last one had just been killed by Herod for preaching out against sin. So there are no more prophets for God to sin. No more messengers. But there is a son. There's a son. And God sent him to Israel as a baby born in a stable, placed into a manger, a feeding trough. And Jesus knows, even as he's telling the story, that he's only two or three days away from going to the cross and bearing the sins of his people. He knows as he tells this story what they're going to do to him. He knows that he's been rejected. He knows that he's been outcast. He knows that these people, this vineyard worker, these religious rulers of Israel, they're going to throw him out of Jerusalem and they're going to murder him at the hands of the Roman Empire. He knows it's coming. But what does he say? He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
Well, what does that mean? Why does Jesus say he's the cornerstone? What is a cornerstone? I'm glad you asked. You ask good questions. A cornerstone is usually the largest, most carefully constructed, most solid rock that goes at the corner of a building's foundation where the two walls meet. And the purpose of this thing is to set a straight line so that all the subsequent blocks that are laid match up to it so that you can build a perfectly square foundation. And so if your cornerstone is warped, if it's got a little weeble warble in it, or if you don't have a cornerstone at all, anything that you build on top of it more than likely is not going to be a healthy building. At some point, the foundation's going to, foundation might be fine, but at some point, the structure is going to be found to not be stable, not be solid. It's going to collapse. Jesus says, I'm the cornerstone. If it's built on me, it's good to go. You need me. I don't need that. Hello? Somebody remind me to cut that part out of the podcast. All right. We good now? Sorry about that, y'all. But do you see what's happening here? I mean, just a day or two before, Jesus cleared out the temple and said, I am the sacrificial lamb. Enough with the religion. It's about me. And now, after exposing the faithlessness of Israel, Jesus said, I am the cornerstone. You cannot build yourself up in the eyes of God like you think you can. But I can. And if you follow me, I'm going to build this thing. And if it's built on me, it's not going to fall. What did Jesus say? He said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Jesus told this crowd, your time is coming. Your time is coming. And the landowner is going to drive you out of this vineyard. And he's going to give it to someone else. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about us, church. Who is God's favor resting on now? Those who by faith have trusted trusted Christ to be their Savior. Who are the sons and daughters of God? Those who by faith have trusted Christ as their Savior. And so this is where the church begins to be drawn into the story. And so as we wind things down this morning, as we land the proverbial plane, here's where the rubber meets the road. Jesus again unleashes a scathing rebuke on the Pharisees. He identifies himself as the Son of God, the landowner's son. He announces that the Pharisees will be taken out of the vineyard. They'll be destroyed. They'll be cast out. The vineyard will be taken from the nation of Israel, given to someone else, the formation of this church, made up of believing Jews, believing Gentiles. And they got it. They really did. There was just enough fog lifted, just enough light given, that they understood that Jesus was talking about them. Look what Mark tells us. He said they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. I mean, they were livid. Who does this man think he is to tell us the cream of the crop, God's chosen people, that, that God's going to kick us out of this vineyard and give it to someone I mean, they were ready to kill him, but there were always people following Christ. And they realized, ah, if we take him now, the public, ah. And so, and so they couldn't deal with it. And what did they do? How did they respond to the, to the undeniable authority of Christ? They left and went away. I mean, how scary is that? How sad is that? Did God reveal just enough truth for them to just... It's okay. I don't 
need that. Do you remember when I said earlier, when we listen to the things that Jesus said and we watch what he did, when we see the naked authority of Christ, we don't have the luxury of just sitting back and watching things like a TV show. We can't do that. Because the same message that Jesus gave 2,000 years ago is the same message that he gives now, right? We can't examine the mission of Jesus to save all who repent and believe without realizing that even today Jesus is calling people to repent and believe. We've seen the response of the Pharisees. They saw the light, they hated it, they turned and left. So what about you this morning? As I stand here on the authority of God's word and I say that we're all born rebels against the holy creator, that from the day we're born we want nothing to do with God because we're spiritually dead sinners, are, are you going to let that truth permeate deep inside? Are you going to let that radically wreck you or are you going to say, no, nah, that's, that's okay, preacher. I don't need that. I'm happy. I got mine. Don't need yours. Jesus is just days away from his crucifixion. But as a church, it's going to take us five or six months to get there. A lot of ground to cover. But we don't have to wait until next year for me to tell you, as many of you already know, that when Jesus went to that cross, he did so so that as he hung there, he could bear the wrath of his Father against everyone and anyone who would ever say, I am a sinner. I can't save myself. I can't achieve righteousness on my own. And so my question for us this morning is, what are we going to do in light of the authority and message of Christ. Because if you're here this morning, and for the first time in your life, you've come to that place where the fog has been lifted, and you realize, wow, I've been trying to do this all wrong my whole life. I have been trying to be good enough to make God pleased with me. You can't. Jesus said, hey, you've got to be in me. You can't do it on your own. So if you're sitting here this morning and for the first time you realize, wow, I need Christ, then the promise for you is that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Of course it's during the invitation. Remind me to edit that part out to you. But if this morning, like the Pharisees, you've heard just enough truth and it's penetrated and you get it and you recognize, okay, I'm being called to respond to a holy God, but your choice is like the Pharisees is to turn and walk away, then the promise for you, according to God's word, is that if you die today, you are still beneath God's wrath. If you die in your sins today, Scripture teaches that you will spend eternity suffering the just wrath of a holy God. Because you have refused salvation from the landowner's son, from Jesus Christ, from the only one who could ever save anyone. As our band comes up this morning and prepares to play, I want to leave you with our journey marker, our thought for the week, the, the, the key thing that I want you thinking about. Because in a little bit, we're going to get our kids out of journey kids. We're going to, hopefully all of us, we're going to walk outside and we're going to watch a young lady be baptized. Her public profession that she has trusted Christ as her Savior. And then hopefully all of us, wink, wink, are going to come back in here. And we're going to tear all of this down. And we're going to go home. And we're going to eat. And sometime later this day, the words that you've heard might be echoing in your head.
What am I supposed to do with what I've heard? Our journey marker is this. The authority and mission of Christ, what He did, who He is, demand our repentance and faith in Him. And what I mean by that is this. In light of what Jesus did when He hung on that cross 2,000 years ago, satisfying the wrath of His Father against sin, in light of what He did, in light of who He is, in light of what He said, it only makes sense. The only reasonable response, number one, is repentance, which is just simply that change of mind, that realization that I'm not good enough to make God happy. I can't please God on my own. I can't be perfect enough for God to say, wow, you did great. Why don't you come on in? All right, repentance is that, recogni- or that recognition that, that you are lost. But then the other side of that coin is, is faith in Christ. Simply trust in Jesus is the only means by which the Heavenly Father can look down on you and say, you're one of mine. That's only found through faith in Christ. And so as we enter into this time of worship, as we prepare to sing our final song, Walt and I are going to kind of be here in the front. If you want to talk to us about what it means to trust Jesus, if you have other questions, if you want somebody to pray with you, you're welcome to come find us. But we're going to have a couple of minutes here. Things are going to get really chaotic afterwards, but we've got a few minutes here for you to figure out how am I going to respond. Now, hopefully all of you in here this morning are Christ followers. Hopefully, as I've presented the gospel, you've been like, man, this is good, but thank God I'm already a believer in Christ. Well, then we have the joy, as we spoke about last week, of taking this message and spreading the fame of God to our neighbors and the nations, multiplying disciples, groups, and churches. I I feel like that message is kind of all around. That's who we are as Life Journey Church. That's what we've done the last year. It's what we're going to do for years to come. I pray that you would plug into it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you, Lord, as always, for your word. Father, sometimes what we find is tough. It rubs us the wrong way. It brings us to a crossroads where we're forced to act one way or the other. And Father, as we follow this parable where Jesus just sheds light on the reality that righteousness is not found in our actions. It's not found in trying to keep the rules. Righteousness is only given us as by faith we trust Christ to be our only means of salvation. It's an old message, Father. It's a simple message. But it's one that transforms everything. So, Father, for those that are here this morning that have never come to the place in their life where they say, you know what, I can't do it. I need Jesus. I pray that you would open their eyes, that you would lift that fog, that you would grant them that new heart that would joyfully cling to Christ. And Father, for your people this morning, as we look back on this last year of what we've done and, and who we are as a church and what through your power and through your grace we've accomplished, I pray, Lord, that you would let us look to the horizon, that you would help us to work out of a motivation not to just grow bigger, not to make a name for ourselves, not to be noticed in the community, but so that your fame, starting here, is spread across the globe as one day it will be, as the knowledge of the glory of God covers the earth as water covers the seas. So, Father, we thank you that you have chosen to do that through this church. Lord, I pray that you would give us many, many, many years to come. 
It's in Christ's name we pray this morning. Thank you for listening to this message from Life Journey Church. Feel free to distribute this podcast, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way. For more information about Life Journey Church, visit us at www.lifejourneyva.com.